This last week I was um, at the cinema with my brother and I was fascinated by the adverts that they showed. It was a over at the Phoenix, so it was kind of an artsy film, an artsy adverts. But there were four adverts, only four, and they were all basically the same. Each and every one explicitly promised us life. It was fascinating. In the light of suffering around the world, it's not that kind of life, not the life of 147 in Kenya shots for being Christians, but life in terms of a, a better quality of life for the here and now. Different brands, but the same message. So with Dulux, you could add color to your rooms to spice up your life. It's just what you need. With Emirates, you can travel the world in luxury, making the most of your life for the now. With HSBC, a bank that understands you. A bank that understands you wherever you come from in the world and will give you a better life. With the VW Tiguan, style and silence and you can save the planet. You can drive around with your small child asleep in the back. And he will cry when your engine goes off at the traffic lights. But you save the planet, you will have a better life. Life is what the advertisers are trying to sell us. And so often we believe them whether, whether we're eight or whether we're eighty. They know how to capture our hearts and our imaginations. They know how to press our buttons. I would love a bit more colour in my life. I'd love the chance to travel. I'd love a bank that understands me. I'd love a Volkswagen that looks like that and saves the planet because of its efficiency. thing is, it turns out their definition of life is faulty. But it's a definition of life that so many of us work from. And so today, of all days, as we look at John 20, I'd love us to think about what true life means. It might be here that you're here and you would call yourself a Christian. You've been a Christian for for decades, for years. It may be that you're not. You're just looking in on Christian things. Maybe you've been dragged here by a friend or a family member. I'd love you to look at John 20 this morning and think about life. Life that the world tries to sell us but life that God promises. John was an eyewitness, and he tells us in his gospel why he wrote. It's on the next page, if you're on page 1089, just flick over for a second and have a look at verse 31 with me. John tells us why he wrote his gospel. He says he wrote so that we might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, God's King, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life. In his name. But the life that he speaks of is not the life of Dulux or of the Emirates or HSBC or VW. It's life with God forever. It's life that begins now, a life that we were made for, a relationship with him that starts here but goes on for eternity. And in a sense, it's what all these other lives are looking for. But they never get there. They're looking in the wrong place. And yet when we start our passage, 20 verse 1, for this morning it doesn't really feel like life, does it? Let's be honest. Remember where we are? At this point, everything has gone wrong. We've had the Friday, and so Jesus, it seems, is not, is not who he claimed to be. The people were looking for a king. The disciples had pinned their all onto him, and, and he's dead. 
There's no doubt about that. That's not up for debate. He had been flogged and mocked and nailed to a cross and he died and they saw it with their own eyes. Some of them carried his body. Chapter 19 ended like this. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He, he knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Did you see how it's ended? As he dies, their hope has died. And they scatter. But the thing is, in just a few weeks' time, we will find them preaching fearlessly on the temple courts in Jerusalem, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the king, as we've just sung. Proclaiming that the plan has worked. This was how it was meant to be. That there is hope, there is true hope for everyone. Which means we must ask the question, what has changed? What has changed between 20 verse 1 where it looks hopeless to fearless disciples preaching on the temple courts, boldly proclaiming? Well, the answer begins in our passage in these first 10 verses, but we'll continue in the weeks to come from John 20 and 21. It's a new series we'll be going through, thinking through the implications of encountering the risen Jesus. But it begins here in 20 verse 1, early on the first day of the week. Notice in John's mind, it's not three days later. That's how we might say it. But he says early on the first day of the week. You wonder, is this a new week? It's a, a new week that will change everything. As if John is saying, let's start the clock. Here's a new reality. It's the first day of the week. And it begins with a woman called Mary. So we've had the burial on Friday afternoon. We've had the Sabbath on Saturday was quiet, silence. But then the Sunday, when faithful Jews can again start their work. And so we read in Mark's Gospel that she has gone to the tomb to finish the job seeking to anoint his body with, with more spices. and How we plan to get in, we, we don't know. Maybe they didn't, have enough, have a, they didn't have a plan yet. Maybe their grief was so much that they weren't thinking straight. They just had to get there and finish what they were meant to be doing. But she leaves the house, see, at the break of dawn, first opportunity, and then she arrives at the tomb. But she finds the tomb open. She doesn't go in. Seems to make up her mind straight away what's happened though. and It's obvious to her, but she's not thinking of resurrection. She's thinking of thieves. Because verse 2, that's what she runs and tells Simon Peter and the other disciple, which is John. Do you see it? So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one she loved, and said, Lord, they have taken him, sorry, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. They? 
At this point, maybe grave robbers who would come and take bodies and linen and expensive spices. Maybe they being Roman soldiers or even Jewish authorities seeking to guard against the claims of him coming back to life again. They can wheel out the body and squash any claims of resurrection. And so Peter and John run as fast as they can to the tomb and John wins. He arrives at the tomb first, but he's wary, he's cautious of going in as you would be. Is anyone there? It's it's that time when you sneak into your sister's bedroom to read her diary. You're not quite sure if she's in, so you, you wait at the door just to see whether there's silence, what's going on. So John cautiously bends down and looks through the entrance of the tomb, sees the strips of linen, but stays outside. Peter barges right in, true to form, in with both feet, heart on sleeve, speak first, think later. Brilliant Peter. You see, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Look around the room with Peter. Do you see it's confusing evidence as he looks in? It's, it's, it's organized. The strips of linen are, are lying there, both the ones that would have contained his body, but the ones that would have wrapped his head as well, lying in its place, as if, as if it had been used by somebody who has no need of burial linen anymore. It's tidy. The linen and, so we presume the spices are still there, which discounts grave robbers. Previous chapter tells us that Nicodemus had brought an extraordinary amount of expensive herbs to embarb Jesus' body. And history tells us that the, the burial clothes would be incredibly valuable as well. So I think John wants us to see this is not grave robbers. This is confusing. Something special has gone on. If you're a grave robber, you're wanting to make money, you don't tidy up after you. You don't leave the goods behind. Maybe the light of hope is just beginning to flicker. And so John comes in. Peter's alive. He's, he's okay. So John follows in after him. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And then see this. He saw and believed. It's striking, as you read these verses, every time you see the word saw, every time it comes, there's a bit more clarity as to what's going on. The picture is more solid, it's more vivid, it's more believable, more to believe in. So, verse 1, Mary saw the stone had been removed. Or verse 6, Peter, Simon Peter, saw the strips of linen lying there. And then verse 8, John sees... And believes. For him, seeing is believing. He didn't get yet that it shouldn't have been a surprise, verse 9, that the scriptures foretold it. He, he believes on the basis of the evidence, but not of his understanding at this point. He sees and believes, and then they go back home. There'll be more next week from verse 11. But for now, what, what do these first 10 verses tell us? What are they for? Why has John included them? I want to be frank with you and say, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, 
the fact of Jesus being raised from the dead is the hinge upon which history turns. It's the foundation for the Christian faith, the most important day ever. Paul, later in the Bible, understands that when he says to a church in Corinth, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we may as well pack up and go home. There's no point in being a Christian. So as you look at these verses, notice with me that it doesn't feel like just a story. There's a detail, there's evidence that John picks up. Eyewitness facts, who got there first? What they saw, who barged in? Their immaturity, their misunderstanding. Because sometimes the story goes, well, of course, the disciples believed. Of course they believed, but this sort of stuff doesn't happen. Miracles don't happen. Rising from the dead, that doesn't happen. So obviously, Jesus inspired his disciples. He was an amazing man. He's an amazing teacher. We can all agree on that. He trained his disciples to, to think or to believe in a particular kind of way, inspiring religious thinking in them. And so when we say Jesus is alive, of course, the story goes, well, that's just through the continuation of his teaching, through, through the rise of faith in the disciples' hearts, through the church being founded as a memorial to him. So they say, well, metaphorically, Jesus is alive. And if that's a poem that's good enough for you to get you through life, then please believe this. If that's true for you, then fine. It's a very common way of thinking. But I don't think it works when we look at these first ten verses in John 20. Because John is describing what he physically saw, what he personally encountered. And what he physically saw changed his life forever. It's not a metaphor. not just a nice story or a poem to make us feel better in a scary world. It, it, it happened in time and space. If you need persuading of that, can I urge you perhaps to come back for the next few weeks? Come and think about the evidence that John portrays for us as an eyewitness who was there. Maybe take a book. There's a free books at the back. The Case for Easter. Um, it's great. It's a little bit American. Apologies to any of you Americans out there. Um, but it's a great way of gathering information and examining the evidence. And um, please take that away and read that. Or better still, chat to a Christian here who brought you along this morning. What convinced them? What difference does it make for them? How does it work out in reality for them? How does it work in their life? Notice as well that, I find this striking, you don't have to get it all to believe. Do you notice that with John? In verse 8, he sees and believes, but in verse 9, he doesn't still understand it all. John believes on the basis of the evidence that is there for him then, on the basis of the evidence that he had, and that was enough. He didn't have everything crossed and dotted and everything tied up. But he saw and he believed. He trusted. He had faith. He received even. There's still much more for him to grasp onto. But notice that you don't need to get it all straight in your mind to actually trust Jesus. You may still have questions. And of course, it isn't just a question of believing facts. The moment that John describes for us, verse 8, where he sees and he believes, changes the world, changes John's world, but bigger than that, it changes the whole world. As Jesus conquers death, this is where we find life. We don't find it in Dulux. 
or HSBC or Emirates or VW. This is life as God defines it. This is where true life comes from as Jesus conquers death. This is, if you like, the first day of forever. Because as Jesus is raised from the dead, it means simply that sin and death are done with forever. It means that death is no longer the end. It means that life is available, true life, the life we were made for. As Daniel said, it's a message for brothers and sisters all around the world who are mourning today. For 147ths shot in Kenya for trusting Christ. This is a message of hope for them. This is a message of justice for them as well. Because we see that sin and death has been defeated at the cross. Because God punishes evil and wrongdoing. It's a very real message for brothers and sisters around the world, but it's a message for us as well. As we think about our definition of life. It's striking, at the start of John's Gospel, at the very beginning, people point at Jesus and basically say, or basically talk about his death. Even at the very beginning, they look at him and they say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you reach the end of John's Gospel at the cross, you see that is true. Because he is the lamb, speaking in Old Testament sacrificial language. The lamb that would be punished instead of the people. The one who would represent the people and take their sin and their wrongdoing upon itself and die as a sacrifice. Dealing with the barrier between a good God and people like us who are not good. And so Jesus is the lamb. But his blood, his death isn't just for a family or even for a nation, it is for the world, for all who trust in his death, for all like John who will see and believe. And so it's a new era that begins. It's when sin and death has been dealt with, it's when life is available. And it means everything has changed. Everything is different. You see, it's an extraordinary fact. But you sort of find yourself papered into the corner. You're not quite sure what did happen to Jesus then. What is the most likely thing? And the evidence points to him being raised again. Which then leads to another extraordinary fact that means we too will be raised again with him as we trust him. And so our perspective about life changes. Because suddenly eternity is open in front of us. And it's not just about making the most of 80 years on this decaying earth, cramming all you can in, milking our time for all it's worth. But it's not just about getting through life with minimum discomfort, just making do. There's a bigger truth that because of Easter Sunday, when true life is available and eternity has come and Christ has dealt with our sin, then then we can have the life that we were made for. Trouble is, trouble is we settle for life being about tulips and HSBC and Emirates and VW. And we get caught up in the everyday hustle and bustle of our weeks and we don't fix our eyes on the true life that comes from him. But you see, because of Easter Sunday, 
Because he died as the Lamb of God and because death could not hold him, so we can have life. The life that we were made for. And that's a life that changes everything. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for that extraordinary Easter Sunday. We thank you that there we see the sacrifice of your son in our place was sufficient. Thank you for the life that he brings. Thank you that the tomb was empty. Thank you for the new era, the new week. Lord, we pray for brothers and sisters around the world who who daily suffer for following this Jesus. We pray that they might know of the hope that we've spoken of. We pray that they might have the life that John offers. We pray that despite the darkness and the suffering and the hardships, they might continue to see and believe. And we pray for ourselves, and we're so sorry the way that we we get caught up in the wrong definition of life. How easily for us it can be about Dulux and Emirates and HSBC and VW and the day-by-day-by-day life now. But we pray that we might look to Christ, that we might know the life that he offers us, that we might know we are joined to him by faith. And so the life that we have now will go on for eternity. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you. For the privilege of enjoying the life that you made us for. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.